gas. Um, I realized something, even just driving here this morning, um, uh, I realized that I had been kind of beating myself up over a sin that I had committed earlier in the week. I had made a, a lewd joke, actually. Uh, it wasn't the worst of all things, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't godly. I made a lewd joke uh, just in the presence of two men that I really love, uh, Andrew and Sterling, and uh, did it to, to get a laugh, honestly. I uh, valued uh, humor and valued my own reputation more than I uh, valued honoring God with my speech. And I realized that I'd been kind of beating myself up about that the whole week, just going, man, I need to go back to those guys and just admit that and everything, but realized even just driving here that I hadn't actually confessed that to God. I hadn't asked for his forgiveness. And so what I thought that we could do this morning, I didn't plan this uh, just this morning, I've been planning it all week, but that's a good, good opportunity just to realize sometimes we don't take time to just confess our sins. Uh, So what I want to do is just very briefly, uh, I want to provide some space. Uh, This is what's called a pastoral prayer. I'm actually just going to initiate uh, some ideas and then have you pray along with me. So I want for you to go ahead and uh, bow your your head, close your eyes, uh, and uh, think, is there something that God uh, is just uh, calling you and the Holy Spirit to confess to him this morning? Take a moment just to confess uh, sins that you have not uh, just confessed to him yet this week. Father God, all of us, uh, everyone in this room um, chooses every day to value uh, things, to love things more than we love you, and that is sin. Uh, Father, I uh, confess to you that I, uh, um, Father, that I made a a joke with my mouth that did not honor you and uh, ask you that you would uh, forgive me that sin. Beloved, uh, as we do pray, as we continue praying in this moment, uh, the precious words uh, that if we confess our sins, that uh, Jesus, God, the Father, the Holy Spirit, they are faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So uh, I want to just speak a word of assurance over you this morning that the reason why we pray prayers of confession is not to tell God something that we don't know. Father, we don't just tell you things that you don't know. We confess our sins to you this morning, uh, knowing that the answer in Jesus Christ is that we are forgiven, that it is finished. Take a moment just very briefly to thank God uh, for uh, the assurance of uh, the grace that is yours in Christ Jesus and to give thanks to him. Father, because of Jesus, it is with clean and humble hearts that we approach your word this morning. I pray that you would put your blessing, uh, that you would expound your word this morning. Lord, uh, would the words that I say not be my own? Would they just be uh, ringed out of your word to us? Father, bless us with the Holy Spirit. Just an extra measure of blessing this morning uh, as we uh, read and study Acts 15. Lord, we love you, and it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Like I mentioned, we are going to be in Acts chapter 15, so if you would, uh, turn there with me, uh, because we're going to be spending the morning there. We're going to be looking at what it is that God has uh, to say to us this morning. But I, uh, I was reminded early this morning, uh, very first thing, well, not first thing, first thing, but first thing when my kids got up, that conflict is unavoidable. It was the first thing that I heard in my household this morning was a conflict that arose between uh, my children. And and what I think is, is that conflict is not only uh, unavoidable, it is like a feature of the human experience. It's uh, something that we have to deal with. It's something that we deal with all the time. And we start early, like I mentioned. Uh, Not just uh, my kids, uh, I imagine yours too. Siblings, toddlers, it's almost like we know inherently how to conflict with other people. Now, I remember being naive before I was a parent. I remember thinking that I was going to do parenting differently, that those conversations, those arguments that happened in the back seat, I was going to so fill our house with love that there was just no way 
that conflict was going to be a feature of our home. And uh, I was just wrong. And, and I wasn't wrong just because, you know, my kids are sinners. I'm, I'm wrong because I introduced conflict. Ironically, or maybe not ironically, maybe totally predictably, I taught my kids how to conflict with one another. And conflict, I mean, I, the, the humbling part is not that I didn't achieve that objective of creating a peaceful, loving home, but the real hard part is when I see the ways that I conflict with others start coming out in my kids uh, yelling at one another, using sarcasm. They didn't learn sarcasm from somewhere else. They learned it from me. They used my same tone of voice. If you've been around uh, my kids, you can see me in them. And it's not all the good parts, I assure you. I'm sure that I didn't have to tell most of you that. Conflict is something that we just engage in all the time. But conflict is not something that's just relegated to elementary school ages. Many of us live under the effects of past conflict. Those cutting words from a parent that kind of replay endlessly in our minds and shape how you view yourself. Conflict, literally for many of us, uh, has uh, restrained and constrained and shaped us so dearly that it's just hard, even in adulthood, to get away from the conflict that we experienced as kids Or maybe it's the continual arguments with your spouse have kind of just left you like listless, exhausted, uh, untrusting, not just of your spouse, but of others as well. It's like conflict is just taking that trust away from you. Or maybe it's a coworker or classmate that you go out of your way to avoid. You just avoid them. Why? Because you had conflict with them. You shared with them something confidential. They used that as an opportunity to gossip about you. You've never felt like you could forgive them, and you just ended up in this conflict. And it's shaped how you view that person, how you interact with them. There's a coolness in the room. There's a a glancing of eyes, but mostly an avoidance. Maybe that's the kind of conflict that you're in the midst of even today. The reason why these things shape our lives is because God actually made us for relationship. He made us for relationship. Do you know that? He made us for relationship, and conflict specifically fractures relationships. Conflict isolates us from one another, and conflict breaks fellowship. Acts chapter 15 is really interesting because it gives us a no-holds-barred view of what conflict looks like. And not all of it is like got a nice, pretty bow on it. Some of it is really sad. I want you to come with me in Acts chapter 15 as we discover this real view of conflict, as we see what conflict seeks to break and see how to restore things after conflict. Verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversation or conversions rather of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, so these are Christians, but who used to be and still are Pharisees, rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore... Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the necks of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. This is the word of the Lord. 
What we find here in this passage this morning is that broken fellowship is only restored by grace. That sounds simple, but I want to say it again because uh, what we all know is that this impacts every person in the room. Broken fellowship, broken fellowship is only restored by grace. What you will have found if you joined with us in the reading this week of Acts chapter 15 is that this is only one of the disagreements that happens in this passage. There's a theological conflict that's happening between these Jews who came up from Jerusalem to Antioch and they said, hey, you've got to be circumcised and keep the law in order to be saved. We're going to talk about that here in just a second. So there was a theological conflict, but then there was also a personal conflict. At the end of this passage, we see Paul and Barnabas have a violent personal conflict. But buried in the midst of it, we also see that there is a spiritual conflict that is at play. Broken fellowship is only restored by grace. And we get a picture of that through the theological conflict, the personal conflict, and the spiritual conflict in chapter 15. The theological conflict. Verse 1 is pretty clear about what this is. We don't have to do too much study about this. Uh, Men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you have been circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Verse 1 is saying, unless you blank, you cannot be saved. What they're really saying is something quite offensive here. It, it It doesn't sound like it at first, but what they're saying is, you're not God's people. Sorry to break it to you. You, you Gentiles, you Gentiles who weren't circumcised, who are not keeping the law, you're not part of God's people. Hate to break it to you. Unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. And and these men weren't passive. They didn't like partially believe this. They were willing to travel for days to Antioch. They were fervent uh, enough to come there and just tell them plainly. They didn't like beat around the bush. They just came and said what they had come to say. And, and by all accounts, it doesn't seem like these are the men of like the circumcision party, because that's normally mentioned. It's not like the sect of Jews that was telling them this. This was believers that had come into the faith that were Jewish by birth, by you know, just life. They had lived under the law for all this time, and they come and they say, hey, listen, uh, you need to follow the law. You're not God's people. And we're well-intentioned enough to come here and tell you so. Now, now, before we get too, like, judgy of these people, I want you to know and understand this would have been really easy to do. I want you to imagine that you were one of these people. They were motivated by the law. They had grown up in the Jewish custom. They valued tradition. All of those things were really, really good. They were now believers in Jesus, and they wanted to have fellowship with all of the people that wanted to follow Jesus, but these people, these Gentiles, they weren't following the law. They didn't feel like they were able to actually have fellowship with them. Do you see that it's, it's easy to judge them, but the truth is, is that it would be easy to demonize them, easy to demonize the teachers, but they've spent their entire life surrendered to the law, and those things aren't going to break very easily. They would have felt like they could not have fellowship with these Gentiles because they were unclean, and everything in their past would have told them so. The things that these Gentiles ate, not taking the covenant sign of circumcision like Abraham did. Those of you who have been doing the reading may have noticed that there's no little bit of attention that's given to that uh, sign of God, that cutting of flesh that symbolized that you were a part of God's people here many thousands or many hundreds of years after Abraham. These men are holding on to that because of how God emphasized it in the scriptures. They would have felt like we can't share a meal with these people. We can't go into their home. We can't worship with them in synagogue because they are unclean. And this theological conflict was big. In fact, it even says it right there. If you look with me, Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. But but guess what? Even a guy like Paul couldn't put this thing to bed. It was not decided. They, They had all of this conflict and it wasn't decisive. And so what did they decide to do? They, they decided that they would be sent out to the council of elders and the apostles in Jerusalem. And as a, as a total aside here, I think that that's really cool, don't you? 
They, they couldn't decide it amongst themselves, and rather than throwing their hands up in the air or just choosing one among themselves as a winner of this debate, they said, hey, let's go submit to somebody else. In some ways, that's, that's a, a neat little thing that a lot of the denominations that we're aware of They have. It's kind of built into denominational structures where you can have uh, just history and tradition and doctrine and all of these things actually like embedded in a denomination. It's one of the things that honestly our church lacks by being just kind of, you know, not out on its own. We have brother and sister churches that surround us, but like in terms of just not having a denominational presence, there were actually some really good things about that. It's worth just acknowledging that that's kind of the way that it was working here. So they go uh, up to Jerusalem. It sounds weird to say that because on the map you're like, they're going down, right? No, they're going up to Jerusalem in terms of elevation. The, the time getting there would have been a little bit uh, longer than the time coming back because it would have taken them a little while to go uphill. So they go, down to, uh, they go up to Jerusalem and they gather together a council a council that included uh, the elders of the church in Jerusalem and of like Peter and James. We find out that all of these people were there and they seek to get an answer. And we get the answer in verse 11. This is the, the whole, like everything really hinges on verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. So when we read this earlier, you understand that they were trying to decide who was right here. They said, hey, listen, you know, neither side is necessarily right. It's grace that prevails in the midst of this conflict. That's your answer. We will be saved through grace, just as they will be. So first, I, I want for us to know and understand that it's not being circumcised or keeping the law. It's not being a Jew or being a Gentile that determines whether or not we will be saved. It's grace that will determine whether or not we are saved. Verse 10 says, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the necks of the disciples that we nor our fathers could bear? The the first thing that comes out of this is, hey, don't be legalistic. Don't tell these Gentiles that we've seen and celebrated the work of the Holy Spirit in them. Don't put some yoke on them of the law telling them that they've got to follow all of these rules, follow all of your traditions. Don't put that on them because it can't save them just like it can't save us. Why? Because we're saved by grace. We just learned that. We just, the, the, the Jews are saying, we just learned that we had to be saved by grace. Don't go back and put this on them. Let me ask you something this morning. What, what kind of legalistic thing are you following under that, believe, that you believe will save you? If legalism is a belief that anything other than grace through faith will save you, what is it that you are hoping and trusting in to save you? For most of us, I mean, we've been in and around the, the church for a long time and we go, no, I know, I know, it's grace. No, no, no. What are you really trusting? Are you trusting in like a certain level of emotion to be connected to God? Are you trusting in your reputation with other people? They think that I'm okay. Maybe I'm okay. Are you trusting in like specific like things, like specific commandment keepings? You look at like the, uh, uh, the Ten Commandments and you go, hey, listen, I'm doing, I'm doing great. I've got like five out of ten of these things on lockdown. I doubt it. But maybe that's what you're trusting in. Maybe you're trusting in how long it's been since the last time that you sinned in that one secret way. Maybe you're trusting in like the quality of your marriage. Maybe you're trusting in your grades and your performance. As long as I can like add up all of the accolades in my life, as long as I can get enough stuff done, as long as I can uh, make this amount of money, as long as I can be contributing member of society, God's got to be pleased with me. Look at all of these other people. You got a law for yourself. You're being legalistic. All of us to one degree or another have things that we are putting our trust in, focusing our affections on to save us. And what this council would tell us is, no, no, no. You're saved by grace. Don't be legalistic. I 
But the second thing that happens here is something that is also grace-oriented, and you have to, uh, the first one's kind of easy to see. I get it, legalism. I've been in and around those kinds of communities. Uh, I know what legalism is. The second one's a little more subtle. James stands up in verses 19 through 21, and he says something a little different. He, he listens to Peter kind of say, hey, here's where we're going. Here's the decision that I'm making, kind of leading out in. He says, uh, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God, but should write them or to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from the sexually immoral, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. What's that all about? It sounds like Peter gets up and says, legalism can't save you. And then James gets up and goes, yeah, but there's a couple of rules. Like, there's a couple of rules. Maybe we should follow those. What's happening there? No, no, no. It's still grace. It's still grace. Here's what's happening. You've got two groups of people that are trying to be united. You've got the Jews who had lived under the law, who had professed faith in Jesus, had uh, been baptized, many of them, in like really outstanding ways by the Holy Spirit. They're Christians. And then the Holy Spirit is doing all of this amazing stuff amongst the Gentiles who did not grow up among any of those customs at all. They didn't even know that they weren't supposed to like, you know, uh, they were supposed to cook their food all the way. Like they just had an entirely different, if you, maybe the Gentiles were out there cooking up medium rare steaks and the uh, Jews couldn't even believe it. They had gone to their house for fellowship. They had said, this feels weird. I've never been in a Gentile's house. But I'm going to go to dinner. I'm going to trust that these people are, is that blood in your steak? I can't even be here. Don't even know what's going on. i got to get out of here because this place is unclean. You see what's kind of happening? The church was finding it very difficult to be unified. And what James is saying is not putting a law on people. He's saying, hey, the Jews need to understand that it is grace that restores fellowship, that restores the broken fellowship between us and God. The Gentiles need to be gracious to those who have lived under the law, who know it is custom who know it as tradition, who know it as a way of life. It's hard for them to just put all of those things out, and they shouldn't. They shouldn't trust in it for their salvation, but God's law is good. God's law is good. It revives the soul. These Jews were doing exactly what they should have been doing, except for trying to put those laws onto other people for their salvation. But the Gentiles needed to understand that what they needed to do was be gracious in return. Do you see it there with me? Jewish Christians who continued to observe the law couldn't come over, share a meal, or even go to the places of worship in their conviction. And the council is telling the Gentiles, have grace on them. Sacrifice some of your freedoms to restore fellowship with your fellow believers. Have you ever been in a church that was just like pretty strict, pretty rigid. Some, some might even say like on the bad side, like legalistic. Have you ever been a part of that, that kind of church? The kind of church that says like no dancing, like none, like no dancing. The kind of church that says, hey, I'd be very hesitant to drink alcohol. Are those things like, can they point to like specific verses in scripture that say, hey, here is the boundary? Well, some things we can, right? We can point to specific verses that tell us, hey, do this, don't do this. But then if we're being honest, there is a world of gray in between some of those things. Christians actually experience by the grace of God quite a lot of freedom to eat certain things, to drink certain things, to celebrate in certain ways, to raise their kids a certain way, to get a certain kind of education. Like there's actually a lot of grace where you can't necessarily see a specific prohibitory law, there is grace. Have you been a part of a church that didn't necessarily see that? What was your response to that? How did you think about that? Are those things a salvation issue? Were they a conviction issue? We need to understand that obedience is good. 
even churches that really try to raise up a high moral standard and use things that are not part of God's law to do it, even those churches are, are doing something good. They're trying to build a community of faith that looks a certain way, that says that, hey, here's, here's how we express masculinity. Here's how we express femininity. It goes maybe a little bit uh, outside of what Scripture specifically prescribes, but this is kind of the standard that we're raising up. I wonder how you've reacted to that. Has it been condemnation? Hey, don't tread on my freedom. That's a pretty typically American response to that, right? Now, I'm, not, I'm not saying that we should be okay with legalism. When people venture over to say, hey, this is how you're saved, no, no. Now, scripture has very specific words for that. In certain churches that are just trying to build a certain type of culture, a certain type of uh, way of living out our faith, maybe, maybe there's enough room in there to sacrifice a few of your freedoms and maybe even do something that we don't do very well as Americans, conform. You're like, you lost me at that word. No, maybe, maybe the living out of our faith is actually like blending into a community, an expression of God's kingdom. Maybe it's that. Maybe you show grace that way. But, or maybe perhaps you're on the legalistic side. You wouldn't say necessarily like, hey, you cannot be saved if you do these kinds of things. But in your heart of hearts, you kind of look down on those kinds of people that do things a certain kind of way, right? I, I do that. I'll do that with stuff that's so far afield from like biblical convictions. I'll do that all the time. I've recognized that uh, um, I don't do a real good job all the time of like recognizing where like my brothers and sisters' convictions are and not necessarily accepting those things by way of like a legalistic standard for salvation, but just like accepting that where it is. It's like um, if somebody doesn't drink alcohol, but I do and I go into their home, I need to be willing to lay that, lay that down. If I go on a retreat with some, that includes a group of people where there might be an alcoholic, I typically won't partake. I typically won't partake. Why? Because it's okay to lay a freedom down in order to show grace to another person. We ought to be willing to do that. But we do it in maybe even more subtle ways. What about the way that you raise your kids? The way that we raise our kids is really personal to us. Like, we're wrestling it out with our spouse, and we're, like, like reaching some pretty defined things. And then we see another couple that's maybe a little bit more free or a little bit more uh, regimented, and we go, like, don't even know how they do it. Couldn't even guess how they do it. It's like, maybe that's not a matter of the law. Maybe it's something that we should be willing to pursue, talk about, wrestle with, but certainly not creating a standard for people it's like, hey, if you don't raise your kids this kind of way, I'm going to look down on you. It goes both ways, guys. Grace. Grace is the banner that we live underneath. Here's what's exciting. At the end of this theological conflict, do you know what we see in verses 30 and 31? So, when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter that letter that had come out of like this essentially board meeting, and then it got like reiterated. We're skipping a lot of verses there because it says a lot of the same things. They gave that letter to them, and when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. That's what happens. There's theological conflict Grace sets on top of that theological conflict, and coming out of that, there is celebration. They're celebrating God's grace. This two-way street of grace and God's grace towards the Gentiles caused rejoicing and encouragement. They were celebrating God's grace. It's awesome. It's great. I hope that we're that kind of church. I hope that we're a grace-filled church, don't you? Maybe so. That's not the only picture of conflict that we see this morning. We also see personal conflict. There's theological conflict. Now we see personal conflict. And what we get is a really honest view of personal conflict. And it doesn't end the same way. 
I'm just going to go ahead and tell you that. It doesn't end the same way. The first one, there was disagreement. There was conflict. They worked through it. There was grace, and there was this outstanding resolution. This time, we don't get that. We don't get it. So I want to pick up in verse 36 and read this. After some days, Paul and Barnabas... Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord. That's a good thing. And let's see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement. So they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. And Paul took Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Verse 29 uses these words. There was a sharp disagreement. And I want you to know that in the Greek, it could not have been stronger. There literally were not Greek words strong enough to describe how violently angry this disagreement was between Paul and Barnabas. In fact, in one place, uh, uh, Paul uses these words, the exact Greek words, to describe the opposite of love. That's how big the disagreement was. It was angry. It was the opposite of love. And what was the outcome? They separated. They had broken fellowship. Barnabas and Mark sailed away to Cyprus, Paul and Silas to Syria. What happened here? I mean, Paul and Barnabas were both Christians, right? Like nobody's second guessing that. They were not only Christians, they were church planters, they were pastors. And I will tell you this. Over the last many chapters of Acts, we get the idea that they were more than just that, that they were like best friends. I mean, they, have you ever been on a mission trip? These guys went on mission trips together. They were like fused together. Have you been on a mission trip where you were almost stoned to death? Me either, but I can't imagine the kind of camaraderie that you would have if you had been on a trip like that. I think that Paul and Barnabas were probably the bestest of best friends, but not forever. They weren't BFFs. The church in Antioch would have seen these Christian men, these church planters, these pastors, these best friends part and go separate ways. They would have seen the outcome. It would have been public. And I would venture to say that it would have been a huge discouragement to the church at Antioch. We get like a really real picture here, don't we? This is one of the things that I love about the Bible. I think that a lot of people think that this is a really sterile book. The Holy Spirit inspired Luke to tell a story about disagreement that ended with Christians going separate ways. That's how really real this is. And I thank God for that. Because sometimes when I'm feeling like, man, I'm I'm just not measuring up, I get to take a look at a story like this that though really sad really discouraging is also really real to me and helps me put in context those personal disagreements of my own. What led to this? What led to this dramatic departure? Was it a a source of like really big things? Was it like going back upstream to the theological? It wasn't. Like always with human beings, it's something seemingly small. Uh, Sawyer and I, for like the... uh, uh, whole of our marriage, the biggest argument that we ever got it was over where to put the couch. It, that's really real. And if you've been in like pre-marriage mentoring with us, you know that about us. And it was a sharp disagreement, we will say. It was where to put the couch. It was something like really small. I, I, I actually, I know someone. Sawyer and I know someone. Not a part of this church, praise God. The, like, genesis of their divorce was over how to wash towels. Man, human beings can be really petty. We can have, like, really sharp disagreements. This disagreement was over a person, 
John Mark. I wonder how he felt. But, but just like the, the couch, there's just more to the story, right? Human hearts are just fountains of feelings, both good and bad. John Mark, here's the re- just to get some context here, this is not going to explain all of it, but just for some context for us, John Mark had left them in Pamphylia. It tells us about that. In Acts chapter 13, verse 13, we don't know why, but there was just a disagreement, maybe, or maybe mission was just really hard work, or John Mark was uh, homesick. We don't know. But John Mark leaves them in the, mission, uh, like in the mission field. And what happens after that? I mean, Im- immediately after that, Paul and Barnabas face horrid persecution. Uh, Paul is so badly stoned, they think he's dead. John Mark left him out there on a vine. Maybe that was what was going on. We, we just, we don't know. John Mark wasn't there for the persecution. He wasn't there. That's, I, think, I think that's probably what Paul's on about. I think that that's probably, he's like, hey, listen, are we going to take the guy who left us high and dry? I'm not doing that. Violent disagreement. Seems petty. Seems ungracious. Or, or maybe for Barnabas, it seems unwise. Seems lacking in discernment. We have no idea. We don't know who is right. The Bible doesn't weigh in on it. In some ways, it doesn't matter. It was a small thing that led to a big thing that led to a disintegration of fellowship. That's what happened. It doesn't matter why. Conflict leads to broken fellowship. Paul and Barnabas go separate ways. And it's sad, and it's real, And honestly, if I can be really real with you guys this morning, it's been working on my heart this week. Been like trying to avoid this like need to repent of my own like broken fellowship. This is really real because it's not just two people in the church, it's like two leaders. Scriptures is telling us, it's telling me that leaders sin. They fail to check their egos. They fail to follow the Holy Spirit's direction. They fail to pursue unity. That's weighs on me. Letting conflict result in broken fellowship is sin. And it is painful. Why? Why why does your conflict, why does it weigh on you so much? Do you ever think about that? Sometimes in the midst of like disagreement, like you just want to like check out and go, why do I care so much about the towels? Why do I care? It's because God made us for relationship. In conflict, that fracturing of that relationship goes to the deepest parts of our soul. We don't know precisely why John Mark was the flashpoint, but we do know that it was sin in Barnabas and Saul, that it probably created sleepless nights, and what they should have done was given one another grace, should have given John Mark grace, but it's hard. We also know that it impacted those around him. It impacted the church at Antioch. It impacted the witness of the church in those cities. How do we know that? You might go like, listen, I read Acts 15. How do you know that? How do you know that that's what it did? It's because that's what it always does. That's what broken fellowship always does. John chapter 13, we're told this. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples. So if you want to be known as a disciple of Jesus... This is what you need to do if you have love for one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Disciples of Jesus ought to love one another and to work hard to prevent conflict and broken fellowship. And when it is present, we need to work hard to make sure that it is covered over in grace. That's what we need to do. Jesus' disciples ought to be the best at restoring broken fellowship when we do. Why? Well, we've covered the theological conflict. We've covered the personal conflict. Here's where it gets good for us. We need to talk about the spiritual conflict. 
Why should disciples of Jesus be best at restoring broken fellowship? It's because, in a word, grace. It's because grace. It's because grace, that's why. Because as receivers of grace, we should be full of grace for other people. The story of Scripture is one of spiritual conflict. Do you know that? Like the whole thing is a story about conflict. Like, man, I've read a fair portion of it. Are you sure? It is. The story of Scripture is one of conflict and one of broken fellowship between man and God. God creates man, but then in Acts chapter, I'm sorry, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 22, it says this. The Lord said, behold, man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Do you remember what was like the, the initial enticement for Eve and Adam? Do you remember it? It's like, you can be like God. You can know both evil and good. They knew the good. They had been walking with the good in the garden. They knew good. The lie was, you can know both good and evil. But humans can't handle that. God can know good and evil, and he can do it without sinning. Human beings can't. Behold, man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever, dot, dot, dot. Have you ever noticed that? There's, a, there's just a dash at the end of that line. God doesn't even finish the sentence. Isn't that crazy? He doesn't even finish his own sentence. Why is that? Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever, dot, dot, dot. Therefore... The Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. These are important words to know where we're going. He drove out the man, and at the east gate, I'm sorry, at the east of the garden of Eden was placed a, the cherubim, not a cherubim, the cherubim, and a flaming sword that turned away, uh, turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. Now, that's an interesting thing there. God is like starting down this trajectory of thought. He's like, man, they know good and evil now. And now if they uh, take the tree of life and live forever, wait a second. If they're filled with sin and they live forever, that's hell. Dot, dot, dot. God gets started on the work of restoration that conflict that had arisen between he and man, he gets started right away. He can't even finish his sentence. He has to get started with it. Our sin has broken our sweet, walking in the garden, righteous fellowship with God. We have confl uh, conflicted with our maker. We didn't want to be ignorant of evil, so we disobeyed God. And all of human history since that moment has been an experience of that broken fellowship with God. There's a pattern of conflict here. Have you seen it? I said that the whole of Scripture is a pattern of conflict. Cain and Abel, Noah's evil generation, Babel, separation, disagreement, conflict, Isaac, Ishmael, Jacob, Esau, rejection of the prophets, corrupt judges, disobedient kings, all of it is conflict that leads to further and further broken fellowship. And not just fellowship between you and I, human to human, broken fellowship leads to more conflict with God. It's just a cycle of sin. Conflict begets broken fellowship. Broken fellowship begets more conflict and on and on. And this is not just true of Israel, it's true for you. Every conflict whispers your need for restored relationship. I wonder if you notice something in Genesis chapter 3. When God didn't finish his sentence, he immediately gets to the work of this restoration. And, and it's not because he like, uh, didn't know what was going on or anything like that. It's because he couldn't wait to be restored to us. He couldn't wait for us to be restored and gathered to him. How do I know that? And Jeremiah, the prophet, in chapter 29, verse 11 says this, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. 
plans for your welfare and not evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me. I want you to think about the garden here. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations that I, uh, all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I have sent you. Do you need to hear that this morning? This is where we're ending, by the way. Do you need to hear those words this morning? Do you need to hear this morning that the Lord has plans for you, for your welfare, not for evil, for your restoration? Three times he says that he declares it, declares the Lord. So you can be sure, sure that you are not separated by a sword or by hiding in a garden. And this future hope, this future hope is that you will call upon, that you will seek and that you will find him. Sin no longer separates you from God. It couldn't. How could it? He declares that he will restore the fortunes of our relationship with him and that he will gather us from those places of exile and that he will bring us back to the garden of his perfect presence. How? Grace. Grace. That's how he's going to do it. In the garden, the pursuit of evil leads to a cycle of broken fellowship with God. We hide from him in the garden. We realize our nakedness, our need for redemption. We hear him moving in the midst of the garden and we feel the shame of our sin. And here he is in Jeremiah 29 saying, that's not going to be you anymore. It's not going to be you anymore. That shame that you feel is not going to be you anymore. Why? Because I've got big plans for you. Plans for your good. Plans for a future, plans for hope, plans for coming to me, hearing my voice, plans, plans, plans for forevermore in his kingdom. That's what he's doing. That's what the whole of scripture is about, is this restored relationship. How will our conflict with God be overcome? The broken fellowship be reconciled and redeemed and restored by works, by the keeping of some law, by circumcision, by your personal piety, by the way you treat your kids, by never having conflict again? The answer is no. Verse 11 tells us we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. It's grace that saves us. At the cross, God looks there at his son and throws out his wrath on him. Jesus takes all of the fractured relationship. Remember, for eternity past, he had lived in perfect communion with God the Father. Jesus had had a perfectly loving relationship with God the Father for forever. And there, he takes on our broken fellowship. All of it. All of ours. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lemma, sep, hibachthani. What does this mean? It means, my Lord, my Lord, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was put out of God the Father's presence. He took God the Father's flaming sword. Jesus, the Son of God, was cut down by that flaming sword so that we might not be cut off from God forever. Grace and only grace gives us restored fellowship with God the Father. Maybe today you realize that all of the other broken relationships in your past and in your present are really just too much for you to bear. Maybe you realize just, I mean, at the very beginning when I said, hey, 
some of us just live underneath that conflict from forever ago. You just go, I can't even bear it anymore. Like, I feel like it's just shaped me and that I ended up being not the person who I was supposed to be. I'll affirm you on that. Conflict has ruined, it has maimed, it has distorted, it has twisted our relationships. And every broken fellowship between man and man, really all it does is shows us the depth of our brokenness and fellowship between us and God the Father. And what we need to hear this morning is that you can be reconciled to God the Father through Jesus. Grace restores broken fellowship, period. Grace restores broken fellowship, period. If you're living underneath the weight of broken fellowship, whether it is here or whether it is celestial, Jesus and Jesus alone, by his grace that we receive through faith, restores broken fellowship. Let us pray. God and Father, you and you alone, by your grace, by sending your son Jesus, by, by having all of the broken fellowship for all of time placed on him, by turning away from him on the cross and pouring out your wrath on him instead of us, we can have right relationship with you. God and Father, would you let us feel it this morning? Would you let those of us who are already in Christ Jesus know that we have restored relationship with you? We will not earn it. There is no mark of the flesh. There is no mark of behavior. There is no law that we can keep that would ever win favor with you. And you knew it. God and Father, would you help us feel so deeply your kind affections this morning? the renewal of a relationship with you that will not, cannot, ever, not in all of eternity, be broken. And it was just your gift to us. <laughs> Father, give us thankful hearts. Father, give us uh, rejoicing and celebration, just like, um, just like the Jews and Gentiles of Antioch. Would we celebrate the mighty things that you have done? Would you let no theological conflict, no personal conflict, no spiritual conflict stand between us and you. Fathers, we turn our attention towards uh, communion this morning. We thank you for it as a symbol of the restored relationship that we have with you. As we sing songs uh, to you, let us know that there's no fracturing. There's no veil that stands between us. Father, we pray that you would help us to see and experience your nearness, your love, your affection for us this morning. And Father, as we worship you, would you be near to us? You tell us that if we seek you, we find you. Father, help our hearts seek you this morning. We pray all of these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.